Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 110 of this show with the legendary Peter Garrett. You can find him on Twitter at P-G-A-R-R-E-T-T. Thank you so much for being here. You can subscribe to this show if you're new and I'll appear on your phone every week just in the podcast app of your choice. Just find me there. You can also go to osherginsberg.com to subscribe and listen to all of the episodes because they're all not on iTunes. You can email me, send osheremail at gmail.com. Thanks to everybody who wrote in through the week. Very, very touching stories. Um, it was really sweet. It's always sweet to hear from you. I, I read every one of them. I try to get back to as many as I can, but I absolutely read every email that you send me. You can also find me on Facebook and uh, Instagram, Twitter. I'm out out there in the world i hope that your week is good i've had a massive week um i thought for some reason at the same time as i'm negotiating my work for 2016 and my contracts and stuff i thought you know what's a good thing to do in a week that you're totally stressed move uh yeah (laughs) so i'm sitting in my new house right now um and i'm back in bondi can you believe it back in Bondi. I never thought it'd happen, but I'm back. So I've been living overseas for a while, so I needed to get uh, everything. Um, so I, I just went down to Bunnings. I'm just back from Bunnings. And Bunnings is a hardware store like Home Depot in the States. And I, oh my goodness, I smashed it. Even the young bloke behind the counter, he, the look on his face, he's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> oh boy, it was tough. You know what I'd love? You know what would make the world an amazing place? If every time that I stood looking puzzled like I didn't know what to do, like happened about 47 times today in Bunnings, a lovely person, a lovely man, or a lovely woman, in a red T-shirt and a Bunnings apron would walk up to me and say, hey man, what's your question? And kindly and considerately explain exactly what it is that I needed to do to make what I need to happen happen. And then say, no worries, you're welcome. And just, if Bunnings could figure out a way to do that, that'd be ace. If they could organize that kind of uh, service outside of their stores, I think the world would be a lovely place. So onto that Bunnings. More sausage sizzles, but I think we can handle it. Uh, So moving is fun. It's interesting. Uh, It's been a big week. I've been moving for about a month, packing up shop in Los Angeles and relocating back to Australia. But uh, we're finally here. We're finally in the new place. And I'm 
had a moment yesterday, and you've done this, you've moved house, and the moment the movers leave and then you're standing there and you're just surrounded by boxes and IKEA furniture you haven't built yet. And I, I just, it was, it's called paralysis of choice. I, I, was, I couldn't move. I didn't know what to do. I just kind of stood there. And Audrey kind of looked at me and she thought, you know, what are you doing? I said, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Because I was like, I wanted to do this and I had to do that, but I couldn't do this before I did that. And I said, tell me, tell me what to do. So she said, build a sofa. Good, good, thank you. So I built a sofa. It was very helpful that I had someone to help me snap out of that. Uh, it was very handy um, because otherwise she would have got super frustrated with me. I would have got frustrated with myself. It would have been would have been uh, a shocker all around. But I had a good chat with my doctor this week and um, he and I very cautiously, but he and I kind of agreed very cautiously that we might have possibly passed a, another milestone together, which is great because when you're in it, it's almost impossible to see that you could ever feel any differently, that when you're really down in it, that that state of anxiety or that state of depression or whatever it is that you're in, that you could never, ever, ever feel any differently, that this is a permanent state and why would it ever change? However, there I sat in his very comfy psychiatrist chair. They've always, always got very nice furniture. No IKEA there. And the two of us sat and we cautiously kind of agreed that, yeah, one of, one of the things that I'd originally gone to see him for was now not so much a major factor. We'll keep an eye on it, but it wasn't quite as gigantic as it was, um, which is pretty incredible, you know, because when I got really sick, I was told by doctors, Don't, look, you will feel better one day. You, this will go away and you will feel better. But I absolutely could not believe the words that were coming out of their mouths. They're well-educated, experienced, seen people like me a hundred times before, seen them get better mouths. I, I, at the time, I just couldn't conceive it. Couldn't even see a place where it might feel differently. Don't worry, I've still got some big stuff to deal with. It's, it's not over yet. But it's nice to realise that where I am from where I arrived, that we've got here. I say we because it's a team of people. I'm just... I'm just the bloke that's paying some of them. <laughs> so let me tell you about my guest today. Man, my guest today is Peter Garrett, one of the world's most iconic and recognizable musicians and activists. He's also the former federal minister for the environment, heritage and the arts, and the former federal minister for education. And for 25 years, he fronted, of course, Midnight Oil, one of this country's most powerful, outspoken, noisy, sweaty, thought-provoking bands. And their musical career was constantly intertwined, inextricably intertwined with activism from the very beginning. They made great music that you could dance your ass off to, but within this music was a powerful message, not like a... A, a strummy, strummy guitar, you know, barefoot kind of, you know, nasal protesty message, but a strong, powerful, masculine, almost warrior-like strength that spoke out against injustice and inequality. You'll hear through this conversation that I referenced my own experiences with Midnight Oil. Now, I'm not really sorry for that because like many Australians of my generation, it was almost impossible to not be touched by this band in some way. They were inescapable. 
Now, Peter's just written a memoir. It's called Big Blue Sky. It's out now all around the world, wherever you buy books. Um, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it in your bookshop. Yes, that thing that is a library, but where you buy stuff. Yeah, that thing. Now, I've really got to thank the social media person, Alan and Unwin, who uh, responded to a random Twitter request about three and a half weeks ago from a, a bloke that counts roses on the TV. Can I please sit down with Peter Garrett to have a chat? <laughs> and they said yes, so thank you very much. Now, I've got to talk to you about the audio quality. Uh, Peter wanted to meet me in a cafe in Paddington. Normally, I don't do it in a cafe. Normally, I, I meet him, my guests in an office or in the publicist's office or at my house normally. Um, but it's Peter Garrett. He said, I've got an hour on a Saturday morning and it's going to be here. I said, okay. So through the chat, you'll hear the sounds of a bustling cafe on a Saturday morning. You'll hear the espresso machine and the steam wand and the sirens and the music and the hubbub of what that part of Sydney is on a busy weekend. But the conversation's amazing. So with that in mind, I'd like you to join me for a, a cup of coffee at a very small table with the extraordinarily engaging, charismatic, intelligent, passionate Peter Garrett. So how are you today? Yeah, I'm really good. Yeah? Where yeah. are we? Uh, we're at the end, end run of talking about this book. No, 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 physically. For people who are listening outside the country, where are oh, we? Oh, yeah, okay, so uh, we're in Oxford Street, Paddington. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Max I... Brenner, and it says on the sign, chocolate by the board man. Which is <laughs> <laughs> partly why I picked it. Did you, ever, did you ever play any gigs near here? Like, this is all very gentrified now, but did you ever play gigs around here? Paddington Town Hall. Yeah, really? Yeah, cracking gig. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we never played the pubs. I think Jim and the boys might have played the pubs across the other side. Yeah. In that period when there was plenty of places to play. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. And yeah. a, a bit, I'm, I'm not mistaken, the Bondi Lifesaver was just down the road, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so far, 10 minutes away. Wow, that must yeah. have been... I heard that was quite a gig. At one point, I think it was the sort of place where if you had nothing else to do on a Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday night and you really wanted to hear loud, furious, wild music and hang out with like-minded people, it was the only place in town. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. We'll, we'll talk about it later. But this is quite... This is on the other side of the world, essentially, from where you grew up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You grew up in the... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a North Shore boy. The Insula Peninsula. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's... Actually, the Insula Peninsula is a south and literally north, but um, look, lovely place, quiet, leafy, calm, yeah. and as a kid, a beautiful place to be because you could go and play out in the bush and fall out of a tree and no one would complain, you know, um, explore caves, try and figure out what those markings were, you know, at the foot of the cave, and then of course realise 25 or 30 years later or 50 years later, hang on a minute, that was Aboriginal people, you know. Really? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think if you go to any part of this country, Osha, and if you just slow down and keep your eyes open and get off the beaten track and spend a half a day just quietly noodling around, you're going to find something. Yeah. Really. A couple of hundred thousand years of human occupation doesn't yeah. go unnoticed. No, exactly. Yeah. And uh, there's, they left plenty of marks. Yeah. So, you know, keep your eye out for charcoal. Uh, big piles of charcoal that are buried under um, sort of cave overhangs, areas that you hit which 
if you're in the bush, you might think, geez, it's a really lovely spot. It's got a nice vista. Maybe there's a little bit of water. Just have a bit of a poke around and you might find some little ad, you know, um, axe heads or things like that. Um, if you're in sandstone country, anywhere like up the whole east coast and particularly across northern Australia, just march out to sort of sandstone country or escarpments and, uh, and you'll find paintings. Mm. They're all there. One of my, one of my favourite stories, uh, what was that fantastic ABC documentary, Footprints? Um, they were speaking with uh, some local people up in northwestern Australia and uh, there was this giant pile of uh, just kind of just huge big red boulders and the, the initial markings were all uh, land animals. This, oh, is yeah. what, this is what we ate. And then they dated like 150,000 years later and they're all aquatic because it was uh, yeah, yeah. pre-ice age. That's right, and the water came and up. And the water had come in. Yeah. It just I know. completely blows my mind. Well, you know, if you go into somewhere like... Some of the gorges in northwest Australia, you can walk along and at eye level, you're going to see like little fish skeletons and things like that in the rock. It's amazing. It's been here for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. You so do you, do you remember like that first experience, like just going out the backyard and, you know, obviously you're back by sunset kids, dinner yeah. time. Yeah. That first time when you were just kind of alone and you didn't hear any cars and it was just Absolutely. sounds and smells. Well, I don't know whether I can remember the very first one, but I, I certainly remember yeah. that feeling. and. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, a real sense that, hang on a minute, there's this big, incredible, pulsing, living continent that's wrapping me up in its arms, and I'm just here by myself. And you get a very strong sense of kind of who you are, and not, not so much how insignificant you are, but how big the rest of it is, but you also don't feel scared. Yeah. You know, because you're a kid. And thank you. Thank you. No one's told you that it's dangerous and that something's going to bite you, and you know, to be careful, and you know, don't ride your skateboard and all of that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, what did your um, what did, what did your folks do uh, back then? So, my dad was a business manager for a big company, a big German company, and my mum was one of the first social workers to graduate from Sydney University. So, kind of ahead of the band, the Bra movement, and she worked in uh, community centres, the first ever community centre here in Sydney, down in the rocks, for old seamen who'd been on merchant vessels and their wives. And then she worked in mental health um, for many, many years. As, when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. As a kid, yeah. So <clears throat> I've been to Northride Psychiatric Centre on Thursdays and Friday afternoons and into the community centre. As a little boy? <clears throat> School boy, really. Yeah, there's, some, boy. There's, there's a smell about a psychiatric ward. Totally. Yeah, something you never forget. Yeah, I know it, unfortunately. <laughs> but I, I know it. Yeah, it's definitely... Uh, there's something about it. Yeah. There's, there's something about the, the vibe in there that is a... It almost helps you approach the reality that's existing for these people. Uh, very much so. And I think, you know, especially when my mum was working at Miller's Point, you know, it was very working-class area, down at the rocks in Sydney, so huge amount of history and atmosphere. Where they're building gigantic casinos right now. Yeah, that's the place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these people just had so much joy of living in them. And I used to go down on a Friday afternoon, I'd sort of shake off my private school boy outfit and uh, hang around with them and sing with them, you know, sing all the old songs and the old sea shanties and the old war songs. <laughs> Not that well, but... A bit uh, of fruity language in there, I imagine. Uh, well, no, but, but, but here's, the, here's the incredible thing about it. Everyone sang, you know, someone could play the piano. Yeah. And um, it just, it really has an impact on you when you're that age. Yeah. Um, you're, uh, please, have a sip of your, uh, yeah, no, your my... coffee while I, I ask <coughs> yeah. this question. Uh, your... Not only your musical career has been something that everybody has, has been really aware of, but from the very moment anybody ever saw you, your, your, your outward display of a sense of fairness and a sense of reason um, 
has always been there. Where did that where did that start? How young were you? Well, you know, I thought about this when I was writing Big Blue Sky, and I think part of it starts when you see the way people around you are. You know, like my grandfather, which is my mum's dad, was a very cool guy who just quietly beavered away. He was a dentist by training, and then he ended up as somebody who just made stuff for people. Um, you know, worked in, like, the Lions groups and Rotary and all the community groups of his time. Translated books into Braille for people that couldn't read. Um, never spoke about it that much, you know. In fact, I didn't even kind of figure out what he was doing until he passed away. And then I sort of asked some questions and realised that's what he'd done. So I think those quiet examples of relatives, whether it's aunts and uncles or next door neighbours or whatever, can rub off on you when you're a kid. And maybe in the home, you know, the fact that um, we talked about this stuff. And so as a young, in your young mind, you're sort of inquiring, why is the world the way that it is? Okay, um, what's my role in it? You know, can I play a part? Yeah. Uh, I come from a, a line of politicians and sports people, so, you know, and busybodies and control freaks. <laughs> so, you know, so sometimes these things are in your genes and sometimes right. it's a little bit, you know, choices that you make, probably a combination of both. So you're this kid that's got this 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 kind of different view of the world. I'm guessing fairly early on you realise that you look at the world a little different from your mates. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, I mean, I had a big moment, I write about it in the book, where, I mean, I was a latter years of high school, and we had a progressive government coming through here in Australia, a guy who really wanted to change a lot of things. And the election had been held. he just lost. His name was Whitlam. Uh, the teacher said, hands up everybody in the room. If, if they could have voted last Saturday, you know, would have voted for Labor. And up, I, up shoots my hand. And it's the only hand that's, that's up. And I sort of looked around. I mean, you know, I had good friends at that school, but it was a school of people who came mainly from privileged backgrounds and their life path was pretty much set out for them and they weren't questioning things and I think part of growing up and being young and and thinking about the world is to ask the questions you know why is that happening or why do you do this or why can't we do something about that as opposed to saying I think I'm going to be fine I think I'm going to be able to make my way and I'm actually not going to concern myself with those things. You uh, I mean, one thing that I was happy about is that we have one thing in common and that we, we were both once involved in the Scout movement, which was, I was, I was, <laughs> I was kind of excited. Yay. Small movements and shorts. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that really um, excited me, so you're this kid that's already exploring the bush, you've got a, uh, a you know, you, you're, you're sucking it all in visually, you're very, and you speak a lot through the book about not only how things look, but how things smell, yeah. uh, which for me <laughs> is a thing that grounds you to a place very, very quickly. Absolutely. And at 15 years old, you go off to New Britain on the end of New Guinea. Yeah. 15 in the middle yeah. of your private boy, private high yeah. school. By myself. By yourself. I you're this crack. Quite... What were you doing up there? Why did you go? <laughs> well, well um, so my dad was originally from up there, and it's a longish story which I talk about in the book, but I basically had an opportunity to visit the relatives who lived there. What's amazing to me even now is that my parents let me go. You know, like seriously, this is the be- most beautiful thing about it is that you realise that you've got to give someone who's got a yearning spirit the room to move because if you don't, they're going to start butting heads against you and breaking out. And they must have just kind of figured that out. And suddenly I land in this unbelievably different, wild, colourful, culturally, totally anywhere from where I'd ever been place and had the most amazing couple of months. And um, 
It probably made me realise that the world was actually a very big place and that not everybody looked the same, not everybody had the same customs and values. And yet there was a lot of richness out there that um, I just drank it in, you know, as I saw it. And you're right. I think it's also about um, allowing yourself to feel the essence of what um, the world is as opposed to listening to the opinions of what people who are commenting on the world are. And when you're young, you can hopefully shut out some of that chatter. And the smell, the heat, the colour, the textures of everything, the tastes of food, I mean, everything was so different. I mean, it was... It's hard to describe it. It's just brilliant. What, what about the relatives that you were there, the, the Europeans that were there, and how they related to the, to the local people? How did, that, how did that affect you? Well, I was also surprised to find that it was... It was kind of like going back in time to, to the old British Empire and people were, they weren't cruel and hard, they just were living in, in a place where they had more rights, more money and more opportunities than, than the local communities and the Tolai people there. Their own country. Yeah, exactly. And, um, Sounds familiar. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> and I mean, even at 15, I really didn't think it could last and I sort of said as much and was you know, hush-hushed as young boys are, but of course it didn't last. Within five years, they were gone. Wow. No. What happened to those relatives? Did they just run away very quickly? Well, it's really interesting, actually, because the, the uncle I went to see was my dad's twin brother. And they were quite close. And he came down to Australia, and I thought, I wonder what he's going to do. You know, he's been a planter. He's been a guy with a white hat ordering black people around. And he, rem- you know, he, did, a, he did a remake and uh, ended up working for a fantastic organisation here looking after returned soldiers and was very highly thought of in the community. Oh, so wow. there you go. So you get back off the plane from Papua New Guinea and you're back amongst your high school mates who are probably talking about football and skyhooks or whoever else was on the radio at the time. Did, did, was it difficult to reintegrate back into that community at, at high school now that you had this experience? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm pretty even sort of person yeah. and I, I can hang with people and enjoy oh. that and I shared a bit of it with some people and they might have been interested and not with others. But what it had really done was just literally open the eyes. Right. You know? I mean, they get open. It's, your eyes have got to get open at some point in your life, you know? Yes. And, and that's when mine partially got opened. Um, so you mentioned about having the path kind of laid out for you. Uh, was university always a thing? I think so, you know, I mean, most of the kids I were at school with thought about that and my mum had been to university and my dad had been denied it, but he probably would have gone and done business or commerce. And I guess you get a sense that education, whatever you do with it, is, is something which cannot hurt you and maybe it can help. And I loved uni. I mean, I loved the, the, the freedom of... I headed out of Sydney. I went to the Australian National University because it draws students from around Australia and also from overseas. And uh, even though I didn't distinguish myself particularly as a student, <laughs> I think I always knew that I would do it and that I wanted to finish it as well. You know, I just yeah. sort of figured... You just, I mean, I don't plan for the future, but I don't like wasting effort. Yeah. So having gone through a couple of years, I thought I may as well keep on going until I got there. There was a, there was a point that in, in the book that uh, I, I wanted to ask you about. Just before, before we went to uni, you went to go work out in a country pub out in a town called Young. Now... Uh, firstly, what, what kind of drinking was going on there? Well, pretty much from 10 a.m. to, to 10 p.m., yeah. there were guys in there drinking beer, mainly beer. Uh, and on the weekends, and particularly in the evenings when they came in from uh, fruit picking or being outside, and it's hot, a lot of beer drinking. 
but it was an incredible experience, you know. And it, again, one of these classic things: take you out of your comfort zone, and you find out, you know, how you are as a person, and you you learn to relate to people. And the circumstances were interesting because the guy who was running the pub had, had a lot of health problems, so I ended up sort of running it with his wife, and I knew nothing about pubs and working with people and beer and well, there's your business and, degree right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's how you learn how it all yeah, works. Well, I don't think I could stay in hospitality forever. <laughs> yeah. But unless you get an idea of how, you Oh, you totally. Yeah, yeah, the business aspect of yeah, yeah. of what you've done in your life is obviously very important. You, it's, it's two aspects of it. There's a creative part, and then there's also we have to make money doing yeah, yeah. this. Um, was it the kind of country town where there was like, you know, the top pub, the bottom pub, the black pub? Was it that yep, kind of place? it was. Uh, and the public bar was a black public bar at times, particularly on the weekends. And I met Aboriginal people there for the first time, really. I hadn't met or seen any Aboriginal people, and so that was interesting that, you know, I was like, what, 18, and I still, I'd, I'd been to New Guinea, and I'd spent time with, you know, Tolai and Islanders and, you know, guys with things through their nose and what have you, and I'd, I'd never, ever met or knew anything, by the way, in terms of education, because I wasn't taught anything either yeah. about Aboriginal Australia at all. Yeah. Staggering when you think about it now. But I also loved the roustabouty, rough and ready, you know, kind of down-to-earth nature of it. And yeah. um, again, young, blotting paper, big experiences, <laughs> soak them up. <laughs> so you get to at university, um, and I'm assuming that ANU and Canberra was fairly politically charged. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm guessing that that kind of hit you fairly quickly. Yeah. Well, I wasn't super political at uni. I mean, I was aware it was all going on. But I was also discovering music. I loved music. I'd sung a bit as a kid in church choirs at a school, and I, like many other people, did. You know, found a bunch of people that wanted to, to uh, yeah, you know, form a band. Away hey, you go. But that's how bands form. You know, exactly. Bands, it's like it's not who's the best bass player. It's no. who's, who's got a van. Yeah. All right, you're going to learn how to play bass. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I mean, they had gear. Yeah. Therefore, <laughs> they were in, a band. You're, yeah, you're in the band. That's yeah. that's easy, easy as. Yeah. Who was the first kind of person that you met, aside from your parents, aside from what your mum was doing, advocating in the mental health community and the social work that she was doing? Who was the first person you met that was like a real, wow, that person really believes in that thing and they're really going out and doing something about it? Was that at university when you met that person? Hmm. It's a really good question, and I'm not sure that I can think of anyone off the top of my head, so I'm going to think about that as we go, because I think that my parents' friends were quite spirited people, and I think they were people who, particularly my mum was a Labour person, my dad was Liberal, but they, the, the marriage worked, but leaving that Just aside... Just for folks overseas, that's yeah. Democrat and Republican. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. No, liberal does not mean Liberal in no, this No, no, it doesn't, yeah. Oh. I know. <laughs> and I think they were people who really loved kind of talking about what was happening and often did things about it. I mean, I saw people when I was young decide that they wanted to create this thing called a Scout and Cub Hall and uh, creating this hall, which you and I both know what happens, you know, a bunch of young boys and sometimes young women now with brownies get in this hall on a Wednesday night or during the week and just go wild and learn how to tie ropes and put up tents and whatever. And they built that, you know, these people just went and built it. They didn't wait for the government to come and give them the money. They just thought, right, we'll go and do it. So I think that probably influenced me okay. a bit. Yeah. Uh, in, at university, it, there was a lot of student activism. End of Vietnam, we wanted to get out like everybody else did. And the student body was highly mobilised. It was an intensely political time. But I wasn't at the front of it. I was just kind of in it. Yeah. And I think you just pick stuff off, in some ways, just by osmosis. Yeah. What at that time, you know, you think now 
how did you organize 10,000 people to be in the same place at the same time without the internet yeah. or a mobile phone? Yeah. But it happened. Always. Yeah. Word of mouth. Yeah. Posters. Yeah. Um, public rallies. Yeah. You know, I remember looking down from between the uni where we were and the center of town in Canberra, and I just, all I could see was heads, you know, sort of heading, heading off to the demo. And that's a really good experience because it reminds you that people power is something that has been around for a long time and it works. Yeah. So when you found this group of people and you start, you know, creating what was to become Midnight Oil, you have, I'm assuming you, you found not only people that had the gear on the music aptitude, but you obviously had a, a combined vision, a kind of ideal of what you'd all like the world to be like. Well, my first band in Canberra was basically students knocking about. Yeah. And, and I mean, I learnt my ropes by playing to bored public servants on a Friday night who'd had too much to drink and really just wanted to hear, you know, Long Way to the Top yeah. uh, by ACDC or whatever that was kind of big rock song of the time was. Like five sets of covers, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. No, I've done it all. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's 20 like, minute breaks. That's like CrossFit for bands. <laughs> it is. It really is. Yeah. And we actually went to playing young. <laughs> <laughs> Did you play the old pub? Uh, no, we played oh, up the road. Oh, but, right. And, and we played to anyone and we'd play anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, Roadhouse Blues, The Doors, The Stones, yeah. whatever. Even Deep Purple, you know. Yeah, right. And hacking it out. And, I mean, it was hacking it out. But I loved it. And I could see that people eventually, once we sort of figured out how to pull it together a little bit, could do it. But it really wasn't until I came back up to Sydney to visit my mum and answered that in a paper, of all things for a singer wanted just to do a surf tour on the coast, east coast of Australia for like a month that I met Midnight Oil. So Rob Hurst, Jim Magini and Andrew James, the first bass player, were kind of just hanging, young guys just out of school uh, in this little hall and I walked in and I thought, oh, they were a bit, I felt a bit cooler than them and then they started to play and I went, well, maybe I could sing with them anyway. <laughs> Didn't sound bad. But, but, you, um, but you, you obviously, you know, in between the songs, you had a chat about life and about how you viewed the world. I mean, you're not like like we said before. You know, if there are a bunch of you know uh, guys who are in a particular way of looking at the world um, nowadays, it would be if I turn up to a band rehearsal and some guy's like, "No, no, no, screw the refugees, send them all home." I'm like, "Well, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm an immigrant, so yeah. I'll be leaving." <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, it wasn't quite like that to begin with, Osher, because I think we just had to try and figure out how to play and make music together. Uh -huh. And how do you fit the bits and pieces together, especially with people who are very different? Like, we all didn't love, you know, The Clash or The Stones or Springsteen or whoever. Taste was very different. And as individuals, we were quite different as well. I mean, everyone had a social conscious and mm. kind of awareness thing. But that sort of came afterwards. It was really, how do you actually make this work on stage? How do you make this sound? How do you turn it into something yeah. that you can go out and start, you know, embracing people with? Right. When I told people I was going to chat to you today, everyone, every single one of them was going, oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But we did it <coughs> a lot. As Bon Jovi said, I've seen a million faces and I've rocked them Absolutely. all. Absolutely. Even my, uh, my, my, my semi-stepdaughter's grandma, she says, um, oh yeah, I saw him at like Jindabyne Hotel. <laughs> that's right. And you go, he sweated all over me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, I mean, we we spent years doing that before yeah. people even kind of knew who we were. Yeah, you built up this momentum. You must have yeah. had hundreds of thousands of hours in the van. 
just yeah. a thousand load ins, a thousand load outs. Just done, I've done them all forever. Hernias, and yeah. sore backs from lifting yeah. PAs. Putting the posters up, you know, doing the posters for your own shows. I've done all that, mate. Look yeah. at these. That's no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> too much. No, I know it is. I had to get out of the van. I was done. <laughs> you kept going. But uh. you, you'd built up this momentum, this momentum, not only as a, as a, a just a a powerhouse live unit you know like again the word of mouth you've got to go see this band yeah. you'll never forget it like can you sing a song I can't remember what songs they were but you've got to go yeah. you've just got to go and, and like that's the thing that would have communicated gig to gig in those days and brought the audiences back every time you visited a town and that kind of came to a head and it all paid off you just exploded it did but it, <clears throat> but it wasn't something we expected you yeah. know, because when you're in the van or when you're on the stage and when you're doing it night after night I mean we were just basically holding ourselves together with bits of string and gaffer tape and staminate you know and I think every day was a, a case of recovering from the night before I'd spend all the next day getting over what I'd just done and I think man I'm just going to lift myself up and by the time 10 o'clock comes I think I can do it yes and then from like 2am till you know yeah. you'd, you'd just be pulling yourself back up by your bootstraps so it really was I think uh, obviously we started to make records and there was an audience there for us and we weren't really aiming for the charts or anything of that sort and we were just finding our niche and really when we went to London for the second time and recorded with Nick Launay and figured out how to use a recording studio yeah. that we started to see the thing lift a bit yeah and what was it about the climate in Australia at the time that allowed you to... Because by this time, I'd become aware of who you were, and I was terrified, to be honest. The first video I ever saw on television was Power and the Passion. And there's this guy oh, yeah. Yeah. In wearing a newspaper, <laughs> surrounded by... In his cave. I was so scared. It was like Channel 7 in oh, Brisbane. I had to read like, about it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, read yeah. about it. Sorry, yeah. so sorry. Yeah. And, and then I had a cassette... That hey. had a general's talk on it. Okay. It was a compilation. Yeah, you yeah. were next to Let's Hear It for the Boy, mate. <laughs> Alright? So let's just let's just paint the picture. Like this this is like when the general's talk is a is a very heavy political song about yeah. despots and, and, yeah. and tyrants and the horrible, horrible political going on, which was very, very real at the time in South America and stuff like that. And it's sitting on this compilation tape of hot chart topping music, including like <laughs> Debbie. Denise Williams, let's hear it for the boy. And I'm this kid, you know, listening yeah. to well, this. Well, you're either going to turn it off or you're going to listen again. But the thing that excited me is that, and I look back at it now, you could dance to it. Yeah, sure. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. And that's the thing. There was yeah. these powerful messages that you're putting yeah. out. 
but she could dance to it. Yeah. And you could really enjoy it. Yeah. It wasn't like other protest songs. Which no, no. Like, oh, I no, you've got to listen yeah. and uh, yeah. think how worthy is that, but then sort of turn something up which is loud and makes you move. Yeah. But you know what? I think the key thing about the band is that whatever we sang about was meshed into the sound that we wanted to make as musicians. So the music always comes first. It has to. There's no other way of doing it. And at that point, and that's a nice loud siren over my right hand shoulder, but it doesn't matter. And at that point, if you're seeing things and you want to talk about them, then do it naturally, you know. Don't force it, don't try and write a speech, but just see whether you can craft songs. And of course, Rob Hurst, Jim Magini, really good songwriters. And then take that and then just go back out and do what you've done before. You're troubadours, you know, really. It's not a conveyor belt, but it is the road. And go out and play it to people. And the more you do it, the better you get at it, and the more you develop a relationship with an audience who come back for more, and you're not relying on the industry and whether your songs are successful in other places to survive. So you have your own alternative source of income, which is your fans, and they keep you alive, and they give you the freedom to say and do what you want to do, and that is a, that's a fantastic heritage for a band to have. And I think that... The next thing that happens is that you go and hang out with people, you go and do stuff with people who are working in politics or who maybe are organising a demo or who want to save the whales. And then you amplify your reach at that point and you go and play a show for them or maybe work with them as I did later on yeah. in other capacities. And it's kind of like a step-by-step -step unfolding process, not always conscious and not always deliberate even. Mm. It's just, it's more like the creative act becomes political because politics is in everything as well. A friend of mine who's been on this show, Ben Richardson, he's now the, he's, he's now the general manager of Viacom, Australia, New Zealand, like runs MTV, VH1, Nickelodeon, da, da, da. He told, he, he came on the show, he talked about seeing Midnight Oil at the Capitol Theatre uh, here in Sydney. Oh, yeah. And he said, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like... He, he, he took the bus down from Narrabeen. Yeah, exactly. He's like he's 18 or 17 or something. Yeah, drank a couple of KBs that yeah. nicked from Dad's fridge on the bus on the way down. Yeah. And just, he said, I remember just going absolutely mental yeah. in, this, in this room. And the energy was intense, intense, and then a song stopped. He says, and then Peter started talking about nuclear disarmament. Mm -hmm. And I turned around, and there's all these people that just look like, like stunned mullets. <laughs> what is he on about? <laughs> no, no, exactly. And you know, here's the thing. And I still feel exactly the same way about this. Any individual has got their own groundings, knowledge, understandings, values, perceptions, beliefs, whatever, and they will take music in any number of ways, including words. They don't have to understand, believe, agree with what you say. In fact, a lot of people now in my life agree and disagree with a lot of what I've done. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I like you, sometimes they still do. And I think when you offer something up to an audience, you, you give it to them. It's, it's your gift, but you lose your proprietary rights over it. You can't say people have got to take this in a certain way, because they may not, and that's fine. And a lot of those young guys I now meet in positions like the fellow that you're mentioning who have got families <coughs> and businesses, and you know, they're thoughtful people now, they're not kids. <coughs> Excuse me. And I say, you know, I thought about that 20 years later, and yeah, I think I sort of get, I get what you were talking about. Alternatively, they don't. That's fine. You say that's fine, but surely at the time you were a little frustrated that... No. No, really? Absolutely not. No, I, I, I think this is a really important thing to explain how I see the world and how I act. Um, I'm not a utopian. 
I don't believe in the perfect world. I believe we've got to keep on striving for a better world. And I know that people will always respond to whatever they see or hear or what's in front of them in their own way. And my job isn't to project my expectations onto people, even though they'll project their expectations onto me. My job is to do whatever I can do as well as I can, as authentically as I can, as strongly as I can. And then wherever it's meant to go, it'll go. And I never lose a moment's sleep about it. The one thing I used to draw the line at in audiences was guys, was violence and aggression in the crowd, particularly as we didn't have a lot of women coming to our shows in the early days. And there'd be a lot of crazy 18, 19, 21 year old guys, muscly guys and you know, whatever. Yeah. And we spent, I spent a lot of time working that through with our audiences and with security people. And we got there on that, you know, because I don't believe in violence. So I don't think it's the way of, you know, I think you've got to be respectful of other people. It's pretty basic stuff, really. But when it comes to talking about nuclear disarmament, I'm still talking about it, you know, and uh, I'll still be involved in it until we get the job done. And maybe someone who heard that song and was standing there as a kid in the Capitol Theatre 25 years ago might go, yeah, I might get on this now, but someone else may not. So let's just, let's flash forward, because this, this is the real, this is the part that I really, I think I'm going to really need personally to get to where you are if I don't want to go insane, all right? Because I sit there and I, I, I'll bring myself to blood slapping my forehead over some of the things that climate denialists will say and do and preach dangerously on primetime television. You've stood in parliament across from these people while they're doing these things. Yeah. How can you maintain that? I'm just going to put it out there and hope it goes where it goes. Well, it was a bit more than that. I mean, <laughs> I actually went into the parliament for that issue. Yeah, right. Uh, the one thing that really motivated me to, to say yes when I was approached that time was I hated what Howard, our prime minister, was saying and doing. And I was fearful that if we didn't get going on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we were going to develop this furnace world, you know, for ourselves and for our kids. And what I've had to learn over time is that it is no good to hate another person because of their views. And sometimes you can't change the way people think because there's no rational logic to it. It comes out of a different place altogether. All you've got to do is try and get into government and change it. <laughs> and we did. But now, you know, you look at what, what, what's happened since and the way that the government after the, the parliament that you sat in has, has behaved yeah. and the things that they've repealed and and the that's painful the, the cataclysmic lies that yeah that's painful and, and not horrible even, this is not even hyperbole like I'm no, no, this is no, absolute no, no. truth it's shocking yeah I mean I sat there well I used to say to Abbott you know across the thing when he, when he said that um, you know Gladstone towns were going to get wiped off the map, map I, I didn't used to shout at people in the parliament and be aggressive and there were lots of reasons for that one is that I knew that as soon as I arced up in the parliament all the snappers all the gallery, all the photographers would grab me, take that shot, and then immediately compare it to a Midnight Oil performance. Got it. You know, straight away. And the two things were separate. I loved the oils, respected them, and I wasn't going to have that line drawn between the two. Second thing is that I don't like shouting at people in a forum when you're meant to be talking about how you're going to fix it. You may have differences of opinion about it. Mm. But I used to say to Abbott and others, you are wrong. This is immoral. I just say it. I wouldn't shout it. And with a detached view of human history, maintain some faith that even if we were going to go one step forward and two steps back, at some later point, we'd go two steps forward and only one back. 
And Abbott's period was two years of unbelievably narrow, black, heading backwards into time with such a lack of regard for the planet and for people's prospects that it was painful to watch. But the scheme that we put in place, a version of that scheme will survive. They'll go to this big international meeting that's going to happen in Paris this year, in December. They'll be there for, what, nearly two weeks. Uh, all the big countries will be there. They'll get pushed and pressured and, I hope, strongly listen to their citizens. And we'll get on with it. You know, history's not a smooth path. You know, the big steps don't happen easily. Sometimes there's little steps and sometimes you, you get pushed off by the other side. You've got to get back up on your feet, push them off and then get on with it. This does give me some some respite. I won't. I hope. I hope. Peter, I've got to, I've got to be honest, because when it all really dawned on me, when it really, like, I've been thinking about, it was even, you know, watching Midnight Oil at a Greenpeace conference in 94, I think it was. I remember in 87 when I, the National Geographic article first came Absolutely. out. Absolutely. I just went, holy shit. Yeah. I'm like a kid. Yeah. And there's going to be nothing for me when yeah. I'm a parent's Absolutely. age. And so my whole life, this thing was kind of, you know, getting scarier and scarier and scarier. And then one day I was living in America at the time and I looked at the New York Times and on the front page they had, they put it there every, that goes, oh, by the way, this month is the 364th consecutive warmer month than the last. Yeah. Just putting it out there. Yeah, just getting it just out there. Just going to put it out there on the front page. Yeah, no, so, you know, yeah, no. And it just, everything just crashed down around me. Yeah. You know? And you know what? I think a lot of people pull the shutters down, you know? And I think that's, it's a terrible thing and you've got to find some inner reserves. You've got to work with other people. And by the way, I'm not downplaying how incredibly urgent it is for us now to get our act together on this because I came into the parliament for this and when I was ACF president, we had an article in our, like, Nature magazine in 1968 talking about this. And I've been there, I've seen it, you know. Uh, so we've got to push very hard. Yeah. And it's one of those humanity challenge moments. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think it's finding the paths of activation that you need to, which suit where you are in your life, whatever you're doing professionally, wherever you live, whatever your hang is, finding those activation moments and you don't stop, you know. So I've never stopped working on this stuff. I never will until the job is done. And if it's not done by me, it'll be done by somebody else. That's fine. You went into politics to... So you actually, you actually step into the system. Yeah. In an effort to change the system. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to change the system, by the way. I think well, it's, yeah. Let's, I, want let's, let's be I want to get better things out yes, of the system. You, want, you, want, you, you eventually said, OK, I'm going to have to step into this game if I want to be a part of this game and help this game move in a way that I personally feel it should move. There's a guy um, who wrote a book called uh, Scrum. It's a management technique. Um, but he, he talks about this idea that in Tahir Square in the Egyptian Revolution in 2011, there were 500,000 people in Tahir Square. There were 14 million people collectively on the streets of Egypt that day. Essentially what they've done is they created a nation within a nation that had collectively said, we don't recognize what you call Egypt. Within three weeks, Mubarak was gone. So outside of the system, they create a change. Do you think that on an issue of this scale, with so many people around the world affected, particularly people in developing countries, that that might be like the only way to get rid of the incumbents or to push the incumbents to action? It may, and I think if they fail the test in Paris, which is a month away, then um, I'll be out there with everybody else. You see, when I went into the parliament, uh, uh, the policy that we put up in government was the policy that I developed in opposition. So 
big increase in renewable energy, get solar panels on the roofs and start an emissions trading scheme to hold temperature increases to 2 degrees and start reducing emissions cumulatively over time. And now we've got a lot of Australian political history there which shows that it was like that one crashed and burned but a similar model came through and started. And here's the key to this. It's, it was a virtuous circle. We had levies on the big companies that were polluting. They could either buy the permits, which would give more money to us, or they paid the money. Some of that money went to help people who were subject to slightly higher electricity bills because they were disadvantaged. And the rest of the money went round the circle, investing in renewable energy, energy efficiency, new startups, ways of actually developing and building a low carbon economy and employing people and holding temperature increases. It worked. We reduced greenhouse gas emissions, 30,000 tonnes against business as usual, the first time Australia ever has. And partly the reason it's hard to reduce emissions in Australia is because our population's been going up. But the other part of it is hard is because we're a very energy intensive society and we did it. So Abbott's arrival for me was a heartbreaker, there's no doubt, and I'm glad to see him gone. But it showed that it can be done and it showed that it works. And you've got to harness people power, but you've also got to harness the economy to do it. Because this, this is what's driving our economy. It's a pollution-driven economy. And we need to have it driven by renewables. Yeah. So just just on that, just about as far as people organising, do, yeah. do you think after what happens in Paris, do you think that there might be a... Do you sense a similar thing in society where enough of a, of a yes. will will come? I do. Uh, I don't think, I mean, I think it goes up and down, you know, people's um, willingness to step out on things depends on what information they're receiving, it depends on how much publicity there is, it depends on how much organising groups are doing, it depends what the governments are doing. But if we fail this test as a global community, then I think there's every good chance that the global community will rise up and demand action. That could get messy. Yeah, but you know what? That uh, and in Australia it won't. Uh, we're lucky we live here. You know, it'll it'll be uh, it'll be civil society, just building and campaigning as we've done in the past. And as a member of civil society previously, I've been a part of that, and I've seen the changes that happen with governments that are democratically elected, consensually. Now, in the countries that you're referring to, in countries where you don't have democracy or one-party states or dictators or people with vested interests, it will get messy. It'll be get hard. We'll need to support those people. I have a, uh, one of my brothers lives in China, and he often describes lives in Shanghai. He often describes, "Oh, they flicked the switch. We have blue sky today." There you go. Because when visiting dignitaries come to town, they, they turn it off. They turn it off. Yeah. They turn off the power stations. Yeah. They ban heating in government buildings. They yeah. close the freeways. Yeah. Hey, look, Mr. Yeah. President of India, yeah. look at beautiful blue skies. And then they say, as soon as he's gone, yeah. six hours later, yeah. the parts per million in their outdoor oh, yeah. thing just goes. Don't go outside. No, and and you know, they can also turn off the internet if they want. If yeah. they get if they get a little bit of agitation happening on the internet as well. So, big challenges for people. But it's like a generational test, and I think every generation has the opportunity to make its future or to break its future, and this is one of those opportunities. We mentioned at the the start of this conversation about your first uh, experiences with um, Indigenous Australian culture in the neighbourhood where you live, which is fabulous to hear. You've always been an advocate for uh, native title, uh, for reconciliation, for equality. 
what would you say to people, I mean, you said yourself, you were 18 before you met uh, mm -hmm. an Indigenous Australian. What would you say to people who are listening to this? Well, that's not my problem. They get too much money. What would you say to people about why native title is important and why reconciliation is important? I think if you just sit back for a second and think, uh, what if I was in their shoes, you know? Here I was, in my own home, in my own suburb, in my own bit of country, and then someone came and literally ripped it out from underneath me. Uh, I'm still here now, and I want to fix that wrong. I want to right that wrong. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be able to right that wrong? And why won't you help me writing that wrong? That would be the first thing. And the second thing I would say is that um, for someone to feel proud of where they live and their country, I can't sweep a dirty lie under the carpet. You know, I mean, that's another lesson of history. These, it might take a thousand years, it might take ten years, it might take ten minutes, but the truth will always resurface, it will bubble back up to the surface, and it will demand to be listened to and, and for the accountability to happen. And I think that it's incredible for me that whenever I went into a school, when I was education minister, and I did three years as education minister, I never met a single kid in an Australian school who didn't want to get things right with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Never met a single one. It's only as people get older and older and older that you hear these bullshit arguments. And I think it's unfinished business for us. And I think if we get it done, then we'll feel good about ourselves as a country, we'll provide a great example to our kids, and we'll be able to go off and get other important work done. You, um, when, when, the last time we met, uh, and I kind of have to apologise here. I don't drink anymore, but it was after an Arias. I was pretty loose, I'm afraid. Um, you were already uh, you were already working in Canberra, and I came up to you and I was like, I, "Where did I just come from? I just I just took a plane from Alice Springs to Perth. I looked out the window the whole time." And you said to me, "Did you get it? Did you feel it?" Like, you knew exactly what I was trying to tell you. When did you really, really kind of fall in love with, with that part of Australia, with that just expansive, mm. vast depth of our country? Well, it's, I, you know, I think the big thing is Blackfella, Whitefella Tour, Midnight Oil, you know, starting to sort of make ground, making albums, touring the world, playing loud, you know, playing fast, and then suddenly uh, being in a place where time was suspended and where people's footprints had been there forever and a day plus and where the landscape has got a lot of power to it because it hasn't got you know it's it's not a place it's, it's a place where people have tread softly that's not to say that it was an idyllic lifestyle by any stretch i mean people did it tough then but you cannot help to be totally amazed by the expanse the the, the sense of a continent that's still breathing and the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of it, and it's subtle, and it's not shouting at you, it's singing to you. And I think ever since then, it, it just captured me. Mm. It, it is something to just sit out there. Oh, yeah. And it's good for you. Yeah, well, and I've spoken about this before. I've... I was... Uh, actually, it was when you played... And you mentioned it in the book, which made me really excited. Uh, you played a gig at the Todd River Tavern in Alice Springs. Yes, we did. And I was there. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. We would come out to do a documentary oh. on Nocturnal. Okay, there we go. Is that, there was a connection. Yeah. And they played with us that night. That's right. Yeah. And we Were you in the crowd? Yeah. Oh, mate. I don't remember that. It was... I'm not even kidding. No. The room is about as big as this cafe. Yeah. There's maybe 200 people had smashed in there. Yeah. 
and it was sweaty. Oh yeah. And it smelled. Oh, it was and rich. It was hot. Yes. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was. It was. Because I've seen you a bunch of times in megadromes yeah, yeah. and you know humongous yeah. rooms, and here I was with the privilege of seeing this band that meant so much to me in front of these people that, I mean, you know, if you're living in Alice Springs, yeah, by choice, yeah. you're, you know. It's it's not Surrey Hills. No, it's no, you know it's no. not Mount Gravatt in Brisbane. It's no. you know it's it's dif- it's difficult. It's earthy. And it's 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 rough. It's hard, and it's a hard scrabble town. And it was great. There was lots of Aboriginal people in there. Lots of white fellas. And you're right. It was shoulder to shoulder, nose to nose. You guys were squeezed on that stage. Yeah, I know. Too. I know. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but we've been out there for. I was going to mention this because we've been out there for a week already, and we've been out on. Um, uh, Damien's we've been out on his uh, mum granny I loved he took the whole time to explain to me how look mate it's the same word in my culture uh, mum granny dad uncle is how we called everybody yeah. uh, mum granny dad uncle and um, and just that just you know, those two words just explained immediately the family yeah. structure it was like oh yeah. so you don't have one person you answer to no you have 15 people who yeah. are all that age that can discipline you equally yeah. alright that'll keep you on your toes yeah exactly yeah, and I remember good. being out there I never like I couldn't see a human-made structure. No. To the horizon. Correct. And I never felt smaller. No. Yeah, but but you weren't scared either. Not until they started telling me stories around the campfire. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think we've lost touch, you know, to some extent with a natural world that was such a big part of people's evolutionary journey. And I'm not suggesting we, should, we, we can go back to that, and we shouldn't, you know. I mean, it's fantastic that we can go to hospitals, we have schools, and there's a lot of things that civilization has cracked which are pretty good. But it sits on the foundation of a biosphere and ecosystems that still need to be healthy. Mm. And you get a big sense of that when you're sitting out there and you can't see buildings, and you notice where the creek has run six or seven months ago, and the way the trees are dropping the leaves, which are dropping their seeds, and the animal tracks in the sand, and then the red dirt. What's it like? I've never been to one, but I can only just could you describe what's it like when you go to a handover ceremony when the native title stuff has come through? Uh, look, I think it's they're amongst the most important things I've ever done, and. The, uh, the residual sense from people that you get uh, is one of um, profound relief and joy and it's older Aboriginal people who have waited their whole lives for this to happen there are a lot of tears um, and there's a sense of fulfilment that is utterly deserved and you know what? People haven't been angry and mad to get it. That's, for me, the most outstanding feature of all of this. If you have your country ripped away from you, I mean, look at the way they're carrying on the Middle East, you know. And yet here are Aboriginal people ripped away from them, and yet they'll patiently, painstakingly work their way through, and then hopefully, and certainly after Prime Minister Keating and the native title legislation here in Australia in the 90s, early 90s, uh, it can come back to them. It's a mighty day for the community and very special, very special experience. Is there singing? Is there dancing? Is there food? Uh, all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there has to be singing uh, and there has to be dancing because it has strong cultural meaning to get your country back. And it's the old people, really. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones because they lived on it so intimately and they knew it so well. Um, when we were out there on Mum Granny's uh, community, um, the only thing she went into town for was tea. 
Okay. It's the only thing she liked. Yeah, yeah. Everything else she got from yeah. her, her land. Yeah. Um, and we were out there. And I've, been, I've been vegetarian fully for about three or four years by then. And dad and uncle got in this... Well, it resembled a Mitsubishi Sigma. Once, <laughs> once upon a time. <laughs> I don't know how he got it working. But they came back with a roux. Yeah. And they started to cook the roux. I'm like, I'm going to have to. Eat. Yeah, you got to. And you did. I can't say no. I did. It was yeah. like one of the last things of meat I ever ate. Yeah. Um, but it was so, it was so, 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 so special. And uh, I, was, I was forever touched by that. And um, when I hear people, you know, and it flummoxes me when I hear the go back to where you came from. Oh, yeah, no, no. If you don't love it, leave. It's yeah. Like, it's like, the, the, yeah. it's brilliant. Didn't foreign, you come from somewhere? Pardon? Didn't you come from somewhere? The foreign slapping continues. Donald Trump, 10 days ago, tweeted, tweeted, my ancestors did not come to this country to have an immigrant take their jobs. <laughs> Whoa! It's too much. It's just... He's got own goal. <laughs> Big own goal. Yeah, and we've got... Look, we we, we got to enlarge our, our circle of... of compassion you know that's really what that stuff's about mm. and and Aboriginal people can show us how to do it I mean they've still got big social challenges disadvantages still rife big issues in life expectancy gaps and the like and it's a hard road for us here and we need to get on with it and not fall away from it but connection to land is absolutely essential and for midnight oil it was interesting because of course diesel and dust became our biggest global record actually blue sky probably did better in some places but totally unexpected again but with a different rhythm and a suspension of trying too hard, you know, to get from the song to the song to the song and easing back and, and listening more carefully in this space and then connecting with people and then doing film clips with them and then taking them with us when we played and it was a huge turning point for us. And that I was think... the first time I'd seen that part of Australia. I was going to talk to you about that. It's like the visual aspect of Midnight Oil. Um, the, uh, the, you know, whether it would be uh, playing a gig in front of this just, just gigantic coal mine, you know, yeah. or which I, I didn't even know idea what it was. It just yeah. looked something out of a Judge Dredd comic. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what is that thing? Yeah. Uh, and then, or, or just playing in the vast expanses of yeah. our nation, you know, just that was the way to expose me to Outback. I'd never, I'd never seen it before. Um, so I'm just going to ask you three more questions, then we'll go. So, um, in your music, you, you've often talked about things, and I, I want to ask about this. Uh, as a kid, I remember learning the words uh, mining companies, pastoral companies, yeah. uh, uranium companies, yeah. um, and singing the song on a video clip in front of a mural. Um, I love a plundered country, a land of something games. Yeah. Power and the Passion. Yeah, yeah, the Power and the Passion video. Um, a lot of these things are still a problem. Yeah, they are, and I. I I don't subscribe to the sort of the big man view of history. You know, some people do. I've heard people recently subscribe to it. I think that you get flashing moments, big historical moments, um, perhaps inspired leadership, and stuff changes. A good example for me is when we first went to play in Germany, we went to play in Berlin. We played this amazing gig in Berlin, and it's kind of like a house with what rooms in it, an incredible yeah. city, and a fiery, fine audience. And there was this wall through the middle of town, and we went back you know, a year and a half later, and it had gone. And we went, wow! <laughs> I mean, that was a big, fast moment. Yeah. And other things uh, I look at, you know, I used to say to friends when I started in activism, I'm going to open a file here on this particular thing, whether it was saving Jervis Bay or whatever, and I reckon it's going to be open for eight to ten years. It could be longer. He's hoping it's shorter. And some things will take a hundred years. And it's frustrating and difficult, but some of that stuff is still with us. 
we haven't enlarged and increased our capacity to be empathetic. We haven't built our empathy quotient up, and we're still competitive. Um, and we need to qualify our competitiveness by thinking to ourselves, sure, I need to do well, I need to work hard, so I'm part of a community that can look after its own, can take care of old people, educate the young people. But then I need to think about the things I'm doing and the things we're doing as a country that can actually do the same thing worldwide. And I think that's coming, but it's a slow unfolding. And uh, we, we, we get to be a butterfly for a while, hopefully, and uh, you know, do our thing, and then another butterfly comes along. And it's, uh, it's a big blue sky. I love it. So, last question. Uh, in the book, you mentioned it a lot. You mentioned your family a lot. I've, uh, I've been seeing this beautiful woman I'm desperately in love with uh, for about a year and a half now, and uh, which is nice because after divorce, you think it's not going to happen again, but then it does. She has a daughter, and what they don't tell you is you fall in love with a kid as well. This girl, we went to a high school orientation the other night. She's 11. She's going to be 12 in January. She's tall, she's beautiful. As a father of daughters, what, what have you got for me? Peter, tell me. <laughs> what have you got for me? What do I do? What can I do to make sure this woman becomes a strong and powerful, wonderful human being that contributes to make the world a better place? Well, you know, I was asked the other night when I was talking about the book, what do you rate as your greatest achievement? You know, is it taking the Japanese to, to, to court on the International Court of Justice to stop, you know, their scientific whaling? Or was it, you know... Uh, solar panels, was it this or that? And I said, no, the, the, I count my greatest achievement that, that my daughters still speak to me, you know. Um, and I think for dads, daughters are the most wonderful things in the world. And you're always there for them. You're not going to judge them. You're going to let them know what you think about what is right and wrong. But you're going to give them the confidence to make their own decisions. You're always going to forgive them. And they'll always forgive you. And I think... Uh, all children learn from the example of the adults around them. So you're going to do good stuff as well, and they'll pick up on it. I have no doubt about that. I hope so, because right, right now there's a lot of eye-rolling when I pull on the cardigan. Do you okay. have to wear that? Yeah. That's, I, well, I've been through the eye-rolling phase as well. Keep talking. <laughs> that won't be a problem for you, by the way. Actually, <laughs> just keep talking. <laughs> Peter, I, honestly, it's a Saturday morning. You're a busy man. You've been doing nothing but speak for the last month. No. So I can't be more grateful for you. Huge pleasure to chat again. It's been Mate, fun. I appreciate it. I'm yeah, going to set up a light stand and try yes. and take your photograph you're do in the here. Photo thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I brought this old camera. We're going to do I saw it. you walking down with a bunch of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. There we go. Oh, you, you are so classy. Yeah, yeah. 1029. Look at that. Oh, mate, I'm, huh? I'm, I'm off the Warringah Mall. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go. Old territory. I'm going to take your photo. Okay. okay. That was Peter Garrett. Follow him on Twitter at P-G-A-R-R-E-T-T. Buy his new book. It's called Big Blue Sky. Go and listen to the greatest hits record. It's called 20,000 Watts RSL. It's just... All that music. Such powerful messages. Such great music to dance to. That's amazing. I've got to tell you, like when Peter and I were talking about the Western Western Desert, when we were talking about, he's a very passionate man, you know, and it, it it's hard to not sit in front of him and go, oh yeah, I'd I'd follow you into a protest march. Oh, absolutely. Oh yes, let's go, let's go. When do you need me to hold a sign? I'm there. He just so fundamentally believes in what he's doing, and and. He was. We were talking about the. We were talking about the Western Desert. 
he's like, yeah, yeah, you hear him and get all excited. And we're sitting across, it's a very small cafe table, all right? Um, and he's, he's gesticulating as he's speaking. He's very, he's very emotive with his hands. And that hand is reaching out to me. Yeah, Oshie, you've seen it. And it's that hand from the cover of the record. That massive hand is coming out, nearly touching my face. I, I, I kept a poker face, but inside me I was like, it's <laughs> awesome. It was so good. Oh, man, I'm so grateful I could bring you that chat. Um, if you like this show, there's 109 other episodes you can find at osherginsberg.com. You can subscribe there. You can also email me, send osheremail at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of what's going on here. And um, you can subscribe as well at osherginsberg.com, and I'll be here on your phone every single week. So um, got to go and try and Larry David my way into some incredibly well-packaged um stuff from Bunnings that you need a sharp thing to open but the sharp thing that I bought to open the things is inside one of these packages so wish me luck Uh, until then uh, from now Bondi in Sydney Australia as the rainbow lorikeets they must have followed me here flitter past my window I wish you nothing but love and I wish you have a great week and I hope that you can sleep well and dream of beautiful things.